The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation. Trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange as NEE. Northern Vertex Mining Corporation is actively engaged in the development of its flagship Moss Mine Gold Silver Project located in the historic Oatman Mining District in Northwest Arizona. Over the past six years, the company has worked diligently to establish a substantial gold-silver resource and is now focused on advancing the project to commercial mine construction and future gold-silver production. Ken, welcome back to the program. Let's discuss your latest news encompassing infrastructure improvements that include updating the roads and power lines, etc., as part of the Moss Mine Optimization Plan. We've commenced construction on site. We're building our road systems. We're putting in place the civil engineering necessary to develop the mine site. We've ordered equipment, crushers and conveyors, and we're really moving this project forward towards an end, which is being production and producing gold by the end of the year. Now, our most recent news talks about some of the efficiencies that we've got planned for the project. Currently, we're looking at approximately a 48% after-tax internal rate of return. For a mining project, this is exceptional. And really that's due to our low all-in sustaining costs of approximately $662 per ounce. Where gold is currently trading in the mid-1200s, this is a very profitable operation. It has the ability to have a healthy margin. Should gold prices pull back to even $1,000, we'll still be producing with a healthy margin. That means a lot to the project. But what we've implemented is a plan in which to boost that internal rate of return by running a power line to the site. Currently, the design of the site is out to use diesel generators. We're going through the process now with the various agencies. We're putting the engineering together so that we can optimize our returns for the project and really make this an even stronger gold-producing opportunity. According to your latest news release, there will be some extra income for the company in the offtake arena. When you're mining in a situation that we have in Arizona, you're creating some barren rock or waste rock. And that rock can be very valuable if it meets the specifications for aggregate or riprap. There is a need for aggregate in the region that we're working. What we've done is we've started negotiations with an aggregate company. They'll pay us for our waste rock. They'll distribute it to various groups within the region. We hadn't anticipated that previously. It turns out to be favorable for all stakeholders in the area. I also had the chance to learn in great depth about what you're doing in the avenue of community relations and how much of an awareness effort you make at the elementary and secondary levels of education. Now more than ever, a social license to operate within the area that you work is vitally important. This is one of the focuses of Northern Veritex is, is to be a good corporate citizen. By doing that, we've been able to create a geoscience program with the local high school. And that acts as a 
feeder system to the university system within Arizona. That's something that's important to us, and we've tried to contribute where we could, and of course, highlight the aspects that resources are important to everyone, and there has to be a balance in recovering those resources, both economically and socially. There's been a vacuum over the years with regard to young people finding their way into the space. Do you think that's turning around? That's starting to happen. There was sort of a period of time where the resource market was suffering. It tends to be a cyclical market. That ends up resulting in fewer entries into the school systems and the university systems. I think we're seeing a bit of a resurge in that, so that's healthy and it's good to have younger people up and coming and be able to be mentored by more experienced individuals in the geoscience program and in the industry sector as well. With a great relationship that you've established at the local and state levels in Arizona, do you think Northern Vertex will serve as a template for other communities with mining projects across the country? I think we've done everything we can to integrate ourselves within the community and to be a good corporate citizen. We are doing good things within our region. As mentioned with the geoscience program, we've helped out with the community information center and the town center. We've done a number of different initiatives to, again, be a good corporate citizen and to look after our stakeholders in the region. The kind of savings that we're talking about with the infrastructure improvements we referenced earlier are significant, especially when you're factoring that into the cost overall of producing gold, such as converting from diesel fuel generators to grid electrical power. Our production plans include diesel generators, and we've spec'd out the most environmentally friendly generators that are on the marketplace. And the project with those generators is very profitable and will be successful in its own right. We're always looking to improve things and optimize our operation. That's where the power line opportunity presents itself. We've discussed this with the various stakeholders. There's a benefit to all parties. I've been speaking with Ken Berry, the president and CEO of Northern Vertex Mining Corporation, trading in the U.S. as NHVCF and on the TSX Venture Exchange's NEE. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a discussion with James McDonald of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major projects in Mexico, including the La Cigar Silver Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora State, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile, highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay Silver currently has two drill programs in progress and a combined 43101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Jim, welcome back to the program. Give us a brief overview of the company, please. Kootenay Silver, junior explorer, developer of silver assets focused in Mexico primarily. Two flagship projects, really. La Negra, which is two different deposits on it, Promontorio deposit. And then La Negra, which is being worked on, does not yet have a resource calculation. Then we have the La Segura deposit and property in the Peral district of Chihuahua State that has 52.5 million ounces measured in the kit, another 11.5 million ounces of inferred silver resource there, wide open to expansion. And then on the Promontorio project, we have on the Promontorio deposit, 92 million ounces of silver equivalent in measured indicated category. And the Negra discovery being drilled by our partner, Pan American Silver, who we optioned the project to last year, giving us a pathway to production with a 25% carried interest to production as they earn in. With La Segura deposit in Chihuahua State, we've won 100%. We're operating that project. Both projects moving ahead parallel here with lots of drilling coming up this year and lots of other work, uh, exciting work. 
You have very encouraging high-grade intercepts from the drill program at La Negra through your partner, Pan American Silver. There's 15 more holes from the drill program that Pan American finished up at the end of last year, confirming the previous drilling that they did earlier in the season. Yeah, a number of really good grading intercepts there. The deposit still open the depth where expect to put out a news release here shortly on the plans that Pan American has for the project in 2017. So it continues to look very exciting for the Promontorio La Negra project coming into this current season. Of course, we're looking forward to more results from it. Well, we all know that grade is very important, and that figures prominently when you consider the potential investment opportunities with your company. Here over the last 12 months, was very busy for Kootenai. We struck the deal with Pan American that gave us that carried production interest on the Promontory and La Negra property. Their interest is driven from the La Negra discovery that we made, which has the potential to be a low-cost open pit operation and return some very excellent grade, quite significant widths and tens of meters of 200-plus gram-type silver numbers coming out of there into the kilogram per ton range as well. Some real spectacular grades there, and of course that improves any potential profits. That's a, you know, grade is king in the business. The other thing we did, this market is turning and probably made its hit its bottom and started to turn a year ago. And we purchased another asset through the acquisition of North Air Silver and picked up the uh, La Segura deposit, which sits in the Peral district of Chihuahua there, one of the biggest producers in Mexico of silver, a major mining camp there. We picked up this 18,000 hectare land package called La Segura with a really nice deposit that comes right to surface potentially amenable to open pit mining, open in all directions, multiple targets there that are under-drilled or undrilled completely. And in this historic district that's produced to the primary mining areas, produced over 900 million ounces of silver lying just five kilometers south of our property boundaries. Very prospective ground. We believe that that reserve is going to get much bigger. And we've done some recent work that indicates that uh, we may be able to improve the economics of what we currently have. We're moving towards two things, making that deposit bigger, at the same time doing work that will go into a preliminary economic assessment and eventually pre-feasibility and on. Potentially, it might be a good time to take a look at Kootenay Silver as an investment opportunity as we continue our excitement about the silver space. Kootenay Silver offers really good exposure to silver, a really good leverage to the silver price. We've got lots of growth opportunities through making these deposits bigger, and you know our objective is to drive that program. Let's do more exploration. Let's see how big we can make it. And at the same time, let's do the underlying metallurgical and other work that will go into an economic study to prove at what point that these deposits are going to return a good profit for building a mine. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. Join me for a conversation with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as G-C-F-F-F. Gold Cliff is a mine development company focused on near-term cash flow by applying the phase production business model to precious metals assets. The company is currently funding engineering and permitting activity on the Pine Grove, Nevada Gold Project through a 40% joint venture interest. Mr. Sanders was part of the team that successfully brought the Silvercrest Mine Santa Elena Project to fruition as a mine, selling it off to First Majestic Silver. 
George, if you wouldn't mind, give our listeners an overview of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation. Gold Cliff Resource Corporation was a long-established exploration company. This spring, we decided to transition from exploration into mine development. We're following the phased production business model, which is a model that I've enjoyed a little success with in another company. Your listeners may be familiar with the Silvercrest Mines, now Silvercrest Metals story, was part of that team, and we were able to utilize that business model and make a lot of money for our shareholders. So in May of this year, we decided in Goldcliff that we would also focus on that business model and transition away from more traditional pure exploration. And by the midsummer, we had acquired an interest in an advanced stage small gold deposit in Nevada called Pine Grove. We're earning a joint venture interest in that project by spending $1.4 million over over three years. That project has had significant development to the point where there has been a resource, most of which is in the measured category, produced. We believe it's capable of supporting a modest open pit heap leach mine, and our activity right now is focused on advancing towards the permitting and project finance type documentation required to build that mine. As part of that work, you always want to see if there's going to be some extra gold beyond your resource. That's the reason that we undertook a small drill program from the middle of October to the middle of December. And yesterday we were pleased to announce some very favorable and encouraging results from that program. Well, let's talk about those results. I understand you've identified intercepts of up to half an ounce of gold per ton. Absolutely. The Pine Grove District is known as a historical high-grade producer. And when I say historical, I'm talking circa 1880s to 1900. There was quarter million ounces taken out of the district, best as, as every can determine at an average grade in excess of an ounce. Bonafide, strong, high-grade former production. While that's not our primary target, we're looking at an open pit heap leach here and more conventional bulk tonnage grades. The past drilling and sampling has indicated that there still are high grades to be found at Pine Grove. And in fact, in this recent drilling, WL114 drill hole had a nice zone in it that included a five-foot interval of just over half an ounce and a separate five-foot interval of 0.6 ounces gold per ton. Better than half ounce in that hole. Those kinds of results, while they're not the target of our drilling, are not surprising because that's the nature of the mineralization in the Pine Grove District. For those that have invested in your company during the last year, I believe lately they may be pleased in addition to new potential investors in these results. And I think we've seen a bit of a reflection of that in the market. The key for any public development company is you always hope that the share price will give your finance investors a little bit of a lift. That has certainly occurred. We hope we can establish a really solid track record whereby any equity financing in the future is always done at a price that's a little bit of a premium to the past equity financings. That's a good way to attract serial investors. That's our goal though there. 
Although I have to say about the market, Ellis, we're much more focused day-to-day on project development and advancing the asset. And it's our belief that if we do that successfully and meet those milestones, the market, as long as we're communicating regularly, will kind of take care of itself. I've been speaking with George Sanders, president of Gold Cliff Resource Corporation, trading as GCFFF in the U.S. and GCN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Give us a brief history of the company, if you don't mind, including its inception. Silvercorp was founded by the current uh, chairman and CEO, Rui Fang, in 2005. He actually built the company fairly quickly. All the assets are in China in northern China and in southern China. They've got two operations in the Ying District and the Guangdong District. And by 2007, Rui had actually started to generate revenue for the company, which I found it compelling because for a company to start out in 2005 and actually be generating revenue for shareholders within two years, it's a high-grade story, which again appeals to me and is why I joined the company. It's been going ever since and been profitable most years. The silver price has obviously affected that, but it's been a profitable organization. 2005 to 2017, it's going strong. Let's talk about the company's just-released earnings results. We're quite proud of them, actually. Last four quarters have been quite good. We had revenue of $130 million compared to $88 million in the same period last year. Net income was $30 million, and a year ago it was $8 million. So that's a 284% increase. Those kinds of numbers are numbers that I think investors can get their heads around. We're also, I'd say, we're the lowest cost and highest margin producer in our space. At negative $5.48 to produce an ounce of silver. No one's touching us there. And those margins at those numbers, it gives us a 58% gross profit margin. Grade and metal prices make a big difference for companies like us. How do you account for the huge jump in revenue last year? And what's the plan going forward in 2017? We're slated to have our guidance that we gave out as I'm growing silver and base metals, particularly silver. We do see that kind of growth sustaining. Of course, metal prices are going to have a big impact on that. We're hopeful that the metal prices will hit the status quo or give us a little bit of, of joy. We're the kind of company when you have grade, if the metal prices and, and silver go off a dollar or two, it, it makes a tremendous uh, impact on the bottom line. Going forward, we're looking at increased productivity, production, and increased revenue and profits. With regard to low-cost production and the company's history of that, how is the company positioned alongside its peers as a potential investment opportunity? At negative $5.48 to produce an ounce of silver, calling sustaining costs of $3.96 over a nine-month period year over year, we're at the front of the pack. When you look at this space, the person that's closest to us is producing at $8 an ounce. It's about grade and it's about the ability to be able to produce cheaply and efficiently. Since 2015, the head grade's gone back up to 300 grams per ton. It allows us to produce at a good rate and a good cash cost. Why is Silvercorp focused specifically on China? The principal 
chief executive officer and chairman, is a Chinese-born Canadian citizen, and he knows China well. And there's lots of opportunities in China. It was underdeveloped. There wasn't a lot of capital that flowed into China, and he took advantage of that in the early 2000s. So there was lots of opportunity to consolidate. The government recognized that it needed outside capital to develop the industry, and he was right there. And what that's done is allow him to be at the forefront with the government in terms of understanding how it works, the taxation, the policies, the permitting. Once you're in there, it's really important to sort of stay the course there. And There's more opportunities for the company in China. I think the obvious question that investors might be interested in with regard to Silvercorp is, does Donald Trump being in the White House affect your operations, giving his protectionist trade policies or possible posturing toward China? The answer to that is no. And the reason is all of the production that we produce in silver and in base metal stays in China and is actually purchased in China. It doesn't get shipped out of the country. If there's a metals war between two countries for whatever reason, it wouldn't affect us at all. This is one of the few silver stories that actually makes money regularly in this space. Gordon, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I look forward to many more conversations in the coming months. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SBM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.B and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium Brine Project, located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Let's recap some of the successes for Pure Energy over the last year and look ahead to what we think 2017 is going to look like. You know, it's a great time to recap a year. We've just had a big year at Pure Energy Minerals. We got a lot done. We drilled six holes on our Clayton Valley South project. We conducted pumping tests. We even completed a mini pilot plant where we actually had a proof of concept of this new technology that we hope will allow us to extract lithium without those huge unsightly evaporation ponds often associated with these operations. The general public is not fully up to speed yet as far as the relevance of the mineral beyond perhaps electric or hybrid cars, lithium-ion batteries, and things of that nature. That certainly is beginning to change, of course, but really energy storage and energy delivery as a whole is certainly the evolving story moving forward, in my opinion. As I look around my studio here, I see nothing but wires connecting one device to another and a flurry of electrical plug-ins on two massive power strips. We live in a society now that wants to be wireless. You know, the lithium story came on the scene for resource investors probably in about 2009, Ellis. As you and I have discussed, I was one of the founders of Lithium One back then. It was palpable that things were going to change, and we think we made some good moves back then to go make some big lithium discoveries and alert the market to it, and we certainly got some traction and, and had a good story there for our investors in Lithium One. However, we were early. The lithium battery industry was still small. The real applications 
of what this high-powered metal could do were still relatively few and limited in scope. Whereas today, as investors are becoming more aware and hearing the word lithium on an almost daily basis, electric vehicles rolling out, growing at 60% year over year, I think you're right. I think lithium's role in the new economy, but also in the new grid, the new way we manage our energy, is just really coming into people's visibility, and, and there's still a lot to learn about it, for sure. Do you believe that this energy grid, one that's actually over 100 years old, if the system were to crash today and some sort of major blackout were to take hold, there's no energy storage system in place or any real measure of self-sufficiency to power America for any period of time, really. How important is energy storage via lithium, and how important will it be in the future? You know, it is hard to believe how dependent we are locked in position, really, in stationary position with our grid. And, you know, you and I have already used the words the grid several times in this short interview, and we might as well plug a book that we've been discussing, The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future by Dr. Gretchen Bakke. And I'll probably reference a few facts in Dr. Baki's book, but the topic she writes about there is exactly that. We have this grid, the utilities that we pay for the delivery of our power. The whole structure is based on a hundred-year-old approach to things, and yet it's clear as you point out, that Americans are rejecting wires in in almost every way we can, and we like to take our power with us, and now we're doing it in electric vehicles. And these things are very well facilitated by lithium, this lightest of all metals, highest energy density of all metals, and the batteries are just keep getting better and better. And as of this moment, if the grid goes down, we suffer immediately and profoundly for the duration of the blackout. We're lighting candles and what have you. But energy storage is on its way. And right now, as Dr. Baki says in her book, 95% of so-called grid storage is pumped hydro. We pump water up into a lake in the mountains, which we can then use its potential energy to run turbines and store power that way. But really, there are no large-scale grid storage batteries just yet. There's a big one outside of Fairbanks that Dr. Baki writes about and others in development. Lithium being so lightweight, having such energy density, can not only help us store energy, as they do with the Tesla Powerwall, which is now being sold, of course, but we can take it with us, and that's where it's so important. And I think that electric vehicles are going to integrate more into our future super grids and smart grids than even we realize right now. I've been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V, and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John McConnell, president and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading as VIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and VITFF in the U.S. Victoria Gold Corp. is a leading gold exploration and development company. The company's Eagle Gold Project in Yukon, Canada, hosts a 43101 compliant reserve of 2.7 million ounces of gold. The Eagle Gold Project is shovel-ready and when in production will produce 200,000 ounces of gold annually at an operational cost of approximately $550 per ounce. The project is permitted for construction and operations. Victoria shareholders are well positioned to participate in a high leveraged gold play and construction of the largest gold mine in Yukon history. If you wouldn't mind, John, give us an overview of the company. We're what you'd call a senior junior. We have a market cap of just over $300 million. We're focused on building the Eagle Gold Mine in the Yukon. What sets us apart from many other juniors out there, we have a very large asset in the Yukon, 2.7 million ounces, fully permitted for construction and operations. And the Yukon's a very good, safe jurisdiction. 
The second thing that separates us is we have a very healthy treasury with over 40 million U.S. So we're in good shape to move the development of Eagle forward over the next 18 months. Now, it's my estimation, correct me if I'm wrong, that this is probably going to be the largest mine operation in the Yukon. Is that true? Yeah, certainly gold. There has been a, the Faro mine was a very large lead zinc operation, but this will be the largest gold mine ever in the Yukon. According to your website, the project will employ 350 to 400 people, which is a very significant economic contributor to the Yukon. We very seldom come across anything like that in any jurisdiction, although they do exist with the majors around the world. How are you going to find the people to fill that large employee? We're pretty realistic. We think probably 30% will be Yukoners or First Nations from the Yukon, and the rest will fly in, fly out. In our budget estimates, chosen hiring points like Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, those areas. So we know over time people will move to the Yukon, but to get started, we're going to have to fly people in. Interesting. That's a question I've had for quite a while with an operation that's going to be the size of your Eagle Gold project. You're fully permitted. When are you going to be going into production? In an ideal world, we'd start construction later this spring. It's about 12 months to build, so we'd be in full production mid-year 2018. That's in a perfect world. We still have some work to do on the financing. Capital cost of the project is $300 million U.S. We just announced a debt facility of $220 million U.S. We have $40 million U.S. in the Treasury currently. So there's still a gap of $40 million that traditionally would come from the equity markets. The issue is we're not happy with where our share price is right now, and we obviously want to minimize dilution to our current shareholders. We probably won't be financing until we see a better gold price, a better Victoria share price, or we'll look at the alternatives. We're looking at all options right now. It's interesting. You're just $40 million shy of your goal now. Ordinarily, that would be a big number, but not with the total outlay that you need. As you said, you've secured most of that through debt financing, so you're working it there on the ground and you'll begin construction within the next 12 months, right? Well, this will be a heap leach operation. We simply crush the material. It gets stacked in a lined valley, and then the material is treated with cyanide. Uh, Cyanide dissolves the gold, and then we extract the gold from the solution. Those that are listening to the program, they hear a chemical like cyanide and they wonder, well, isn't that bad for the environment? Everything's controlled. You know, the pad that the rock goes on is completely lined and there's leak detection systems in there. So we'll be very careful and it's not new technology. There are literally hundreds of cyanide heat bleach operations around the world. John, this is an investment-based program, and let's talk about the potential upside for any shareholders that are considering becoming an investor with Victoria Gold. There's a number of metrics you can look at. One that a lot of people use is P-to-NAV comparisons. We traded a P-to-NAV of about 0.56. Fully financed developers traded about 0.7. Single asset producers traded about 0.9. Some of the uh, seniors trade as high as 2.4. There's lots of room for upside on our share price currently. I've been speaking with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading as VIT on the TSX Venture Exchange and VITFF in the U.S. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellosmartreport.com. Join me for a conversation with Eric Fear, President and CEO of Silvercrest Metals, trading on the TSX.
SX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Silvercrest is a Canadian precious metals exploration company headquartered in Vancouver, BC, that's focused on new discoveries, value added acquisitions, and targeting production in Mexico's historic precious metals district. I understand you just visited Silvercrest Las Chispas property. You believe it's important to put boots on the ground. Boots on the ground are one of our keys to success as we've had in the past. And you need to have executives on the ground to make some important decisions, everything from discovery and production. It's key to have people on the ground as an executive that actually can make decisions around exploration. Myself being a geologist and a mining engineer, also a qualified person as far as the exchange is considered. All those things work really great for Silvercrest. I'm really excited to see several drills going on site, the continuation of the underground rehabilitation. We actually last week ascended to the 700 level at the Las Chispas vein, which through the rehabilitation of the underground old historic workings, we're able to walk several kilometers underground now. It's just astounding how much mineralization still remains underground. Probably wouldn't be outstanding for prospectors and miners in the 1800s with the grades that we're seeing. Average grades currently Las Chispas vein, William Tell vein are running about 500 grams per ton silver equivalent over one to eight meters. That's what we're sampling currently underground. We are getting samples back that are in plus 5,000 grams, five kilo type range of silver equivalencies. Those are selective samples. That really shows uh, the opportunity to bring in some high grade to a value added situation here. We've drilled about 5,000 meters of an 8 to 10,000 meter drill program. That's a mix of surface drilling at Las Chispas, William Tell. We're going to be drilling also our maiden holes into the Varela vein coming up in the next 30 days. We've got three to four holes planned there. That's all in the same area as the Las Chispas and William Tell veins. And now Bobby Canora is the big story to tell here. Our shareholders and potential shareholders really need to be watching the news coming out on Bobby Canora. It was the largest historic producer in the region during the 1800s. Public domain information suggests somewhere between 80 to 100 million ounces silver equivalent that was mined above the water table. We're currently drilling in the face of a tunnel that was driven in the 1860s. This tunnel is about four meters by four meters, so it's quite large access. It's in about 230 meters into the what we call the Cerro Mount Bobby Canora. That gives us a distinct advantage because we're drilling right into Bobby Canora vein at that point. So far, it looks pretty good. We're getting assays back. Any other catalysts that we might see before the summer? We're looking at continuing the underground rehabilitation. So as we go down into the lower levels of the Las Chispas vein, we're also working on some upper levels of the William Tell vein. So expect to see more reports and updates as we access those areas. Again, looking for these high-grade remaining tons that still may be in place that would be mining opportunity in the future. The drilling that we're doing at Las Chispas, William Tell, and the Bobby Canora now will be used in our maiden resource. When you're doing these programs,
programs and you continue to have success and things continue to grow, you tend to push those resources off until you really have a critical mass to put something out that has meaning to it. We may be in that situation right now where we'll just continue to have success and it'll be a great exploration story till a point where those numbers need to be released from a resource NI43101 qualified standpoint. We got 19 veins on the surface or in drilling that we've intercepted or underground that we can pretty much touch right now and we're only working on four of those being Los Chispas vein, the William Tell, the Varela, and the Bobby Canor. At what point are we going to see that updated 43101? Is that in the fall? Yeah, my target is based on my experience at Santa Elena. So when we put out that first resource, it was in 2006. And again, Santa Elena is a great story and it's about 25 kilometers just south of Los Chispas. I'm looking right now if we get to a critical mass of somewhere between 15 and 30 million ounces of silver equivalent, then those are times to start reporting these numbers. We'll take it from there. I've been speaking with Eric Beer, CEO and president of Silvercrest Metals. Silvercrest Metals trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SIL. Dr. Gretchen Bakke is a cultural anthropologist and professor at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. She's the author of The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future, available on Amazon, Audible, and other venues. Gretchen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Everything that we live and experience in life, when we turn on a light switch in the morning, when we pour ourselves a glass of water, at some point can disappear. And that makes us sort of a fragile entity and a fragile civilization, much like the grid that you speak about in your book. We're deeply infrastructurally dependent. It's our fragility, but it's also our strengths. Why we have an international banking system, why we have the manufacturing systems we have. In a way, the two are linked. The kind of amazing prowess of modern civilization and the fragility of this dependence on infrastructure that to a large degree we don't really understand. We don't really know how things are made. And I think part of what's changing with the grid, at least, is a kind of attentiveness to that. And even to the point of like bringing it back home, talking about offshore wind or putting solar panels up, the conversations are happening in a way that we didn't used to talk about coal-fired power plants. Like they were much more out of the consciousness than the the things which are replacing them. You mentioned coal-fired power plants. I wanted to get into that in a later part of this interview, but that's a dying breed, isn't it? Absolutely. It seems to be like, even though there's a lot of talk right now with President Trump of sort of rehabilitating coal, it's simply not cost effective. I was just listening to somebody yesterday talking about how the future really does become a conversation between natural gas and renewables. Coal is just going to sort of slowly fall out of that. The worries about global warming and the worries about extraction technique and the worries about cost are going to be conversations between these two. And by conversation, I mean like actual ways of making power. Are you including solar in that renewable energy? Solar, distributed solar, I think is actually going to be the thing that pushes us the furthest in having to rethink the grid. But also big wind, small wind will probably come into the story. I'm sort of surprised that it hasn't yet. Hydro, biomass, geothermal, all of these things, they each work differently. When I say renewables, I mean all of these things. So people often, when they say renewables, they often say non-hydro renewables. And it's because they're trying to measure a delta of change. Change over time, which is to say how much is solar growing as a percentage of our electricity production, how much is wind growing? Actually, when I say renewables, I include hydro because I'm not so interested in this like leaps and bounds. We have way more of it. It's sort of established now that that's true. And I think what becomes interesting is how all of these resources actually work together or can be made to work together. So that's my term renewables means all of that. Water, wind, air, tides when we get to it, river hydro, biomass, geothermal, all of it. Okay, so we've mentioned about half a dozen potential energy sources. How does that construct into what essentially is us 
throwing a switch and we get our power and all come from one source, a grid, be it a fraying grid. But still, I hear all that and I'm thinking, okay, so as a consumer, am I putting my biomass into uh, some sort of generator here? As a consumer, as a listener right now, how do we non-compartmentalize this into one source of energy? There's somebody I actually talked to at PG&E a couple of months ago in the autumn and told this very nice story. Then after I tell the story, I'll go back a little bit to the history. He said, imagine you're standing in a field and you have a drum. There have some people with drums um, and one of the drums, it says coal on it. And one of the drums, it says natural gas on it. And one of the drums, it says nuclear on it. And one says solar and one says wind. And you have somebody playing the coal drum and then you add in the wind drum. And that sound of the two together is actually the equivalent of the electricity that's coming into your house. So all of those drums, when you're playing them, you can't separate out the noise of one and say, I'm simply selecting to listen to this only the renewables drum and not hear the other ones. You in fact have to hear them. So when people say you're getting 100% renewable energy into your house, you might be paying a subsidy that is helping pay a wind farm, which is producing electricity for the grid. But the electricity you're actually using, it's a mix of all of the generators which are hooked into the grid. And how that is balanced is the problem of maintaining such a big electric grid. But the different sources of generation, so different fuels that are being used, they each have their own logic. And so using them together actually allows for a kind of stability to the electric supply that you wouldn't have if you only had one, which is why we see this transition happening little by little with lots of different fuels coming into the mix. And the more variable renewable power we have, meaning wind and solar, the more we have to figure out how to balance those because the electricity they make depends on how hard the wind is blowing or if the sun is shining. When the wind is still and the sun is down, there needs to be some other way to create that drum beat at a constant rate because it's that constant rate that actually gives us the reliability of the system. So is that musical concert you're describing as a metaphor, is that happening at home at our own micro grid or is it the responsibility of utilities to put these variables together? It's the responsibility of a lot of different people to put it. I mean, there is no home micro grid except for some very few outliers who have gone off the grid at one point or another for whatever reasons. For almost all of us in America, we're hooked into what's now called the macro grid. We tend to just call it the grid, but the macro grid, which is actually technically three giant machines, one for the western half of the U.S., so from the Dakotas to the Pacific Ocean, one for the eastern half of the U.S., which is the Dakotas to the Atlantic Ocean, and then Texas has its own. Why do you think that for a civilization where even the populations of third world countries have supercomputers masquerading as telephones with extreme accessibility to a world bank of knowledge, that in a first world country such as the U.S., Canada, there are still things such as electrical lines and poles, etc., traversing our inner and outer landscapes. Part of the problem is that we don't have a way to wirelessly transmit electricity. There are people working very hard on this. The best case scenario, which is coming, will probably be the lack of outlets in a house. But right now, we can only transmit electricity wirelessly about eight inches. So the electricity on the wires, it isn't the same thing as a telecommunication system. You can't put a wave through the air that's made at a wind farm off 30 miles offshore and have that do any good to anybody if eight inches is as far as you can go. And even that is in the works. It's not that electricity is running through the wires like water runs through a pipe. The electricity is the wires. So the metal in the wire is actually creating this bump of electron from atom to atom to atom. That's what electricity is. It's these electrons bumping into the next atom, pushing away another electron in that atom, which bumps into the next atom and pushes another electron off of that one. It's like the way that dominoes fall. So you can't take the wires away and have the electricity because they're the same thing. 
So that's why we have an electric grid, which is wired. And the tendency to desire wirelessness that comes from radio, from oh, the internet, Wi-Fi, from cell phone networks, all of that sort of makes people imagine that, oh, well, we should just have our electricity coming from thin air too. But we don't have a way to do that. The other thing we don't really have a way to do, which I think surprises a lot of people, is effectively store electricity at any scale. The power that's made that we use, we use it fresh. We use it, generally speaking, within a minute of it being made. And that's because electricity can travel fairly far in that minute. It needs to be used up. The electricity which is made at any given five second period of time, let's say, needs to be used completely. You can't have too much and you can't really have too little. When I talk about balancing the electric grid, that's the project. You think of a machine which is the size of half a continent and everything that it makes has to be used within a minute. That's a fantastic degree. You would call it fragility, delicacy, balance, care, all of these words that we tend not to think of in terms of big infrastructural projects. That absolutely applies to the electricity system. Every time we make a change to that system, this balance has to be negotiated or it won't work. We used to have horse-driven carriages and then they became automobiles to just to free us up from the drudge of having to feed our horses and replenish them. Tesla was experimenting with uh, generating electricity through the air, perhaps successfully, but that's never profitable for a, a monopoly like an archaic utility company. Part of the issue with energy storage, maybe this technology was available 30 years ago. Let's just say it was never developed because it didn't serve the utilities. It's as if the water's going out and you have no access to drinking water or bath water. Hopefully you have some storage somewhere that you can use during times of a crisis. That was never set up with regard to energy storage. It's just not in place. And only now, and I'm referencing something in your book, only now are we uh, building in Long Beach uh, an electrochemical battery office building. Are we going to see more of that? Are we eventually going to see the utilities die off? I think storage has always been a massive problem for the utility industry or for the electricity industry. We don't even have to talk in terms of utilities. Utilities is the way that we've decided to run an electricity system that is universal, well-managed, and government-supported. It becomes, in fact, drinkable water. It's a decision that was made as a nation that everybody would have electricity and it would all be the same quality and it would all be affordable and it would be available to the degree that anybody wanted it. That was the 20th century model. But storage bedeviled that project from the start. That's because electricity is not a thing, it's a force. Figuring out how to store a force, you think, if I give you this problem, could you make me a box of gravity, right? You see immediately, like when we talk like that, oh, that's not easy. How do I make this very heavy box? That's not an easy project. In fact, storing electricity is similarly not easy. The ways that we have to store it right now, they never store electricity. They use electricity or some other energy source to cause something to happen that can then regenerate electricity when reversed. There's no electricity in a battery. A battery is a set of chemical reactions that you use electricity to run in one direction. And then when you sort of flip it the other way, chemical reactions run in the opposite direction and they produce electricity. That's a rechargeable battery. And lithium ion batteries have really been exploding since 2008. They are the first option for a battery chemistry that is long enough lasting and actually has a very constant release of power. The chemistry of a lithium ion battery is well suited to all kinds of modern technology. Probably remember in the beginning, the laptops used to burst into flame. They're very hot. Even now the Samsung telephones that nobody will let you take onto an airplane, they're having the same problem. They do allow for Tesla electric cars, this battery going up in Long Beach. There's quite a lot of battery experimentation happening right now in California. Large scale batteries coming online because of this Alito Canyon gas storage facility failure. Suddenly what had become an experiment in energy storage is now coming online much sooner than was expected in California. So that would be the story to follow for seeing how these batteries actually work at grid scale. So there's four ways to quote unquote store electricity. You can store it chemically, which is the battery. You can store it mechanically, which is what almost all the storage on our grid is. Most of it is pumped hydro storage, which means you use excess 
excess electricity to pump water up a hill into an empty reservoir. And then when you need more electricity, you let it run down by means of gravity and it turns a turbine at the bottom. There's thermal storage, these smart hot water heaters, which are so not sexy that nobody ever wants to talk about them. But they're hugely important the way that the grid is changing. A hot water heater can communicate with the grid and understand when there's an excess of electricity. Because one of the things that happens, especially with high density solar, meaning you have a lot of solar in an urban environment, is there's too much electricity at noon. And then all those hot water heaters, they use that electricity to heat the hot water. They decide. So that's thermal storage. Inertial storage, which is basically a big heavy thing. You use electricity to move it and then it keeps moving after you take the electricity out. These are very often, when I say it can take 60 seconds between when electricity is made and when it's used, a lot of that is in inertial storage. So these very quick flywheels, for example. But it's also, interestingly, why you can buy a diesel generator for your house. And when the power goes out, you can use that because all the pieces inside a diesel generator are really heavy. When you turn on the stove, even though you already have the lights on, if you have an electric stove, that inertial force turns the stove on. It allows the stove to turn on while the generator then begins to produce more electricity to deal with that additional load. If you have solar panels on your roof, there is no heavy moving part. So you turn on your stove and nothing happens. You're not making more electricity than you were before you turned your stove on. So this inertial storage is also very important. So that what is that? Thermal, mechanical, inertial, chemical. Those are the four. I know that you're a big fan of the Tesla Powerwall. That in conjunction with photovoltaic cells on the roof on every flat service in the Southwest, California, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah. Minnesota and Vermont are two of the leaders actually in home solar. And Florida is not. Part of the point of that is that it is in fact still cultural, still regulatory. It's still governmental. Which of these states are having seeing a boom and which are not? It's not just how much sun they have. At what point are we then done with the grid? I mean, if every wall in our house becomes a storage battery, essentially, then why do we even need to feed energy back to the grid? The main reason, and it's interesting that it's only people who sort of came up in the 1960s who asked me that question. I think there really is something about independence or do-it-yourself or risk avoidance that makes this fantasy of going off-grid or using even the big grid as a backup system and being very independent, having your home be your castle, something between a castle and a prison <laughs> or a compound, I guess. That particular idea, it's not really happening, but it's a kind of a constantly articulated fear. And when I was researching the book, I was surprised to see that electricity is a common good. So it's something that all Americans need to have access to. They need to be able to afford, and it needs to be the same quality of electricity. A lot of the policies that have been put in place, for example, net metering that pays you for the electricity you produce at home. So you have a solar panel, you produce that electricity is never for you. You're producing electricity always for the grid, almost drastically, completely very close to all the solar panels that people have on their roofs in America right now. On businesses, parking structures and homes, all of that power is feeding back into the common grid, even if you have storage. So even if you do have a power wall battery pack or some sort of battery pack like that, when needed, power is drawn back out of the grid again. Part of the reason for this is because it's a way of continuing a sense of contributing to the common good. In Massachusetts and Minnesota, and it's starting in Vermont as well, it's a slightly different approach than what you have in California are these community called solar gardens. And they allow people who aren't homeowners to buy into a solar array in the same way that a homeowner can. You pay for part of the array, you get the tax credits for it, and you're producing power for the grid, and you get paid for that. So you can also zero out your electric bill that you're paying to the utility, even though you don't own a home. Actually, it seems like what's happening is a lot of creativity toward figuring out how to make the transition to a more renewably powered grid as kind of communitarian as is possible. We talk about the common good here, and I know you've addressed this in your book. What about those families, individuals that are, let's just pick a number and say they're earning under $30,000 a year, and they've got a utility bill in a, in a really warm climate in the summer where it's perhaps $100, $150 a month. Same thing in the winter with the 
cold. And they're never going to see a solar panel within the next five or 10 years overall. I'm making a general statement where they're at. They're being saddled with the demise of the utility companies whose rates are still very, very high. When will this become a non-issue as a futurist, which I know you are in some degree. To some degree. I think more and more because that's somehow what people want to know about. I should say that half the book is about the past. True. It's about how we got the grid we got because the history of it is in fact really fascinating. There are two or three things that are happening to answer that question. One is almost passing now, but it's still a part of the conversation and it's definitely a part of the conversation when I wrote the book, which is that utilities began to raise rates on people who weren't producing solar power. When people talk about the utility death spiral, which is such a wonderful phrase, and it comes in and out of vogue. So there are these moments where it's like everybody agrees that it's the utility death spiral in action, and then everybody agrees that that's ridiculously overblown. We'll spend four or five years saying it's not the utility death spiral, and then it will come back into vogue again. What it means, regardless of whether or not it's happening, most of these net metering projects as they existed when they were first set up were in a strange way premised upon rich, primarily white people, early adopters who would put solar up on their house and then would be paid at the retail rate for the electricity they produce. What that means is the utility has a contract with these people. So they have to buy this electricity produced at the retail rate instead of buying, for example, electricity produced by a natural gas plant or a coal-fired plant at the wholesale rate. When that happens, they see any profit disappearing. They're still maintaining all the lines. The electricity made by those solar panels is still going into those common lines, but they're both selling and buying at the retail rate. So this is obviously not going to work over the long term. As this sort of boom in rooftop solar happens, and there are places where you see a huge pushback against it for a variety of reasons, money being a big one, there's sort of a series of renegotiations of how that's going to work. That's where we are right now. We can't make mostly solar power and pay everyone the retail rate for that power because there's no way for the utilities to make any money. So then will the utilities go out of business or will they raise rates on the poor? That was the fear. Raise rates on the poor and then the moderately rich, the richest of the poor would then get solar panels because it was cheaper and it would go on and on and on until the only people who were left were the ones who couldn't possibly afford to pay the bill for everybody else. Basically what you see now is legislation sort of pushing out or trying to figure out ways to get out of that problem because what is happening is a drastic mainstreaming and the solar industry is pushing very, very hard for this of distributed solar, which means just photovoltaics everywhere. Putting highways everywhere. Anyway, any, any flat surface you can put, like why would you build a thing without a solar panel on it? Even in places that are cloudy, why would you ever do that? And what Tesla says he's going to do and may in fact do is just make roofing tiles which are solar. There's a company that is making windows for skyscrapers called the curtain wall, but it's essentially these glass windows that form the entire external surface of a skyscraper, just making those into photovoltaic. So even if they're producing a fairly small amount of electricity just by the nature of the design right now, over that surface, you're going to get a huge return. Slowly, it seems like that kind of ubiquitous sort of power production at low and high levels being actually integrated into things, not put on top of things, but actually integrated into the things we build. If I'm a futurologist, I would say that's coming. It's not here now. In many places, you're not allowed to produce more electricity on your roof than you use in a year, which is why you see when you drive around, you see these rooftops that have like four solar panels on top of them with all of this exposed roof. These are these places where legislation becomes very visible. When you're like, you have a whole roof. If you're going to bother putting up solar panels, put it on the whole roof. Part of that is just like, how are the utilities going to make any money if you're actually making more power than you need? Then they're paying you a retail rate for a lot of electricity. Can we see nearly free but sponsored electricity, much like we have a nearly free internet but sponsored? What's happening is a much greater degree of private owning and maintaining of infrastructure, many more smaller players, but it's still a public-private mix. What we need to do is think about how we're going to continue to fund the public part of that. Private lines, for example, there's a company in the Northeast which is building high-voltage, long-distance power lines only to move renewables. That's their gig. It's always marrying wind with hydro. You're promised on this line, if we go back to 
for that drum beat, there isn't any coal and there isn't any natural gas. That, those drums are silent if this line is what's supplying your electricity. And they're doing very well. Then you have a private line. Money has to be paid in to maintain this infrastructure because it won't be wireless. That's kind of the sticking point. How will we do that? Professor Baki, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you. I've been speaking with cultural anthropologist Dr. Gretchen Baki, the author of The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future. Find her book on Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble, and Audible.com. Listen to the Ellis Martin Report again on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, or on our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.